episode of the Survival Podcast. Uh, as always, one man's opinion of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is episode 3223 of the Survival Podcast, and it's actually going to be two men's opinion because I have Daniel Allen about to come on with us in just a few moments, and we're going to talk about building the 80% life. What does that mean? The 80% it's like an 80% receiver, right? No, it's imagine if you could produce 80% of everything you need on your property as far as income, food, energy, all that. How much freedom would it give you? If you're thinking that's a high number, it can be done. That's what we're going to talk about today. But what if you did 20, 30, 40, 50%? What kind of difference in your life would it make? What kind of difference would it make to maybe, oh, I don't know, like your retirement or would your life kind of be one long retirement? Who knows? That's what we're going to talk about today. Before we do, though, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. I uh, want to remind you guys again, we talked about this yesterday because I had John Bush on. But I am going to be in Bastrop, Texas um, on January the 18th through 22nd. I might not actually be there all the way through the 22nd, but I'll be there or the 18th. I got to be there the 19th because that's what I'm speaking on Permaculture Day. This is going to be amazing, an amazing event, tons of great speakers. Last year when I did one of John's conferences, there was over 500 people there. I think this one's going to be even better. The opportunity to meet the speakers is great, but the opportunity to meet other people like you, it's just awesome. You can learn more about this conference and how to attend it. Again, it's in Bastrop, Texas. That's central Texas, sort of kind of in a way near the Austin area. You can see some of the people speaking there, myself, Mark Moss, uh, Alex Zeg, Nomad Brad, Texas Slim, Rebecca Powers, uh, Dot Ken Berry, bunch of other awesome people. John Bush himself will be speaking there. And Zuby, who's a great music, great rap artist. And I'm not really into rap, but his stuff's pretty damn good. But what I love about Zuby, he's actually an amazing critical thinker. Uh, he has a huge presence on Twitter. Uh, he's outside the box, which means he's inside our world. Uh, I'm really excited to get to meet him. I've been trying to get to meet him a long time. Hey, you can meet him, too. Come check it out in Bastrop, Texas, at The Greater Reset 4. Next up, Paul Wheaton has something out. It's uh, it's going to be available later this week. But today, up till tomorrow night, you can get it for 35 bucks, which is Stupid cheap. It's his 2023 homesteading bundle. He's taken 35 of his best products that he has and putting them together. Understanding Roots ebook, right? Small t- from small town to homestead, right? Uh, tiny house living. We're going to be talking about some tiny house stuff today. Uh, Hugel culture chapter of edible landscapes with uh, the permaculture twist. Tons of great stuff. You just look at how much is here. And I'm looking for something specific. You're going to recognize somebody here in a minute. Nicole Sauce, cook with what you have. That's there as well. 35 ebooks. This is over almost 300 bucks. It's like $285 in value today up till tomorrow at midnight. That's central time, by the way. 35 bucks and you get it all. Definitely worth checking out. And with that, I want to go ahead and introduce our special guest, Daniel, brother. How you doing, man? I am doing great. Just loving it. So we actually had you on 
quite a while ago, and I think we talked about Air Creek back then. We're going to talk about that again today, but a bunch of other stuff. In fact, like I said, we're going to be digging into is what you call building the 80% lifestyle. And I love that concept because a person can adjust that up or down. And it goes right into what I've taught forever, that you've got self-reliance we measure in time and self-sufficiency you measure in percentage. But before we dig into that, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you end up living in, I think, the Chihuahua Desert? <laughs> Building aircrete houses in, in, in far west Texas and living out there in a homestead in the desert, I don't, you, you probably weren't born there. What what journey through life took you to, to this place? Well, um, you know, I started, like most of us, you know, getting our um, high school education and moving on to college, moving to Dallas, um, you know, uh, having the retirement, all the normal stuff. And you know, back during the Great Recession of 2008, you know, I, I struck a deal with a, uh, a guy that was developing quadruplexes and I was acting as the general contractor there. And in, of course, all along this time, I'm listening to your podcast. I'm learning everything I can. I'm adding skills. I'm pra- putting into practice, you know, what I can uh, in between my busy schedule. But come the Great Recession 2008, the, uh, the guy that I was building this quadruplex uh, project for basically uh, embezzled a lot of the money to build his son's home and, and a, a gymnasium for another organization. And so at the end of that period, I was left having paid my help, uh, having paid all those materials and having charged up all my credit lines to the max, <laughs> suddenly out in the cold with nothing. So uh, basically, I wound up having to start life completely over. But having, you know, been exposed to a lot of great information, having already got some practice and experience growing my own food, uh, I just kind of threw the cell phone in the trash, uh, walked away from it all, thinking if I was ever going to prosper at that, I would. Um, and so I got a couple years of, you know, basically living 100 percent on what I could produce and what I had. I cashed out the retirement fund and um, started helping people uh, with alternative building. And one thing led to another. It got to where, you know, uh, I was enjoying that a lot more. And so what became just a respite or a break from work kind of became a lifestyle. And then I made the ultimate decision to sell uh, my property in East Texas, uh, cash out the rest of my retirement. And I bought some property out here in in what at the time was the middle of nowhere. Uh, and move out here because I just loved the peace and quiet, uh, even though, you know, to go pick up an Amazon package, it was a 168 mile round trip. Um, oh, that's but, crazy. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the joys of, of being truly off grid and uh, in the back of my mind, I just love the idea of that pioneering spirit. And I love to problem solve and then put my labor and my effort into my life uh, where everything that I did benefited me directly. And that's kind of what the 80 percent lifestyle is, is, you know, putting whatever your energy is into benefiting yourself directly as much as possible and removing those parasitical expenses when possible. So let's talk about land, because this is going to revolve somewhat around land. In your opinion, is there such a thing as perfect land? I mean, one of the great things about where you live is that land is incredibly affordable. It's it, I would use the words stupid cheap. Um, if you don't go relative to something like fertile plains of Tennessee, but the price per acre is ridiculous, the differential. And, you know, Tennessee's pretty inexpensive compared to a lot of places in West Texas. It's just very, very low cost. But 
it's a harsh environment. Uh, it, it can be harsh just for water. There's plenty of people that I'll drill a well. It depends on where you are. How do you kind of justify like looking for perfect land and looking for what you can afford or what works for you or growing where you are? Okay, well, you know, I would preface it, first of all, with sometimes you just have to do what's possible uh, in your situation. And the fact is, there's no such thing as perfect, period, whether it's people Mm -hmm. or land. Um, You know, when I was in East Texas, we had eight inches of rain one day in 45 minutes. uh, And that year we had so much rain that uh, the garden didn't grow well because it leached all the nutrients out of the compost and soil. In the desert, you can't find water. And here, in fact, there's there's not even technically an aquifer here. So you can't drill a well. And if you do find water, it's usually too salty to garden with. So regardless, nothing's ever going to be perfect. And, you know, we do workshops here and I get to talk to a lot of people. And what you find is that you say you find that most people say, well, I want a piece of land in the wilderness by the ocean next to a stream with a waterfall in the forest next to a Starbucks uh, and, and an organic <laughs> grocery store, you, you know, probably your expectations are going to uh, be what prevents you from finding something. And I look at it this way. It's better to have something imperfect and finished than be looking for something perfect and never get anything done, because ultimately you can always sell what you get. Mm-hmm. And I think you have to come with the attitude of, you know, perfect is really hard to find. And no matter what you or where you start, you can build something and then sell it and move on later. And if you need a forest, but all you have is a desert, uh, you know, like I have a video of a bird sanctuary 12 miles from here. It's a forest in the middle of the desert in contrast to what looks like uh, warmed over death out here. So you can build permaculture systems of support in a desert or uh, you can create uh, a desert type situation in a rainforest. So really, it's about you taking responsibility and creating the true, the elements of what it is that you decide uh, you need or want to make you happy. What What is your water solution since the well generally doesn't work? Are you doing rain catch, hauling water in, doing both? And how does that uh, interact with things like gardening? Because there, there's way more water goes into gardening than a lot of people, I think, realize if they live in a place where the rain gives the most of their, their irrigation. Right. So, you know, obviously it varies a lot with your environment. So you have to kind of tune in and see what's already being done. But out here, uh, we actually have two windmill wells and they produce one well has so much salt. If the water hits the ground, it turns white. So, uh, the other one is about 690 parts per million uh, magnesium salts. So great for bathing in, not necessarily great for gardening because the salt builds up. So we catch rainwater, but, you know, when you put up a roof, that's an expense. And when you talk Mm -hmm. about gardening and actually collecting enough rainwater off a roof, um, it kind of becomes unreasonable unless you just have money to burn. And so our solution here is we have a grade, you know, basically at the top of our land, um, it looks pretty much flat to the eye, but like Jeff yeah. Lawton says, almost nothing is. So we have somewhere in the neighborhood of a 16-inch drop by the time okay. you get to the bottom corner of our land. So we put a berm all the way across the, the bottom end of our land, and even a half-inch downpour, the water hits that berm and runs down into ponds. And basically, at the time, right now, we only have two ponds, so we only catch about 13,000 gallons of that water, but it only takes one half inch sudden rain event to make that happen. And so that water is then 
you know, pumped up into two tanks where we store uh, about 6,000 gallons of water in tanks. And that water uh, is used as backup after we pump down the ponds themselves into our gardening system. And out here we find that, you know, because we have to be desert wise. And if you pay attention to what Jeff Lawton and his students are doing in Jordan, you see that they have pretty much gone exclusively to wicking beds for what you know yep. the, the gardening does. And so paying attention to that and putting it into practice, we built a hybrid aquaponics soil system. And so there's very little uh, top evaporation. So we use about 250 gallons uh, a week uh, in water per you know, individual garden. And when I say individual, I mean like the garden space that it takes to feed one person. Okay. And, and so basically, you know, with 6,500 gallons of water put up plus the ponds, we have more than enough water to run our gardening system. Gotcha. That's, that's very cool and very creative. Um, let's start talking about some building techniques because that's a big part of what you do. Mm-hmm. Why might someone choose to build a home using what we would call alternative building techniques, because I think it's all cool, but it's pretty well known exactly how to build a stick built house, right? Mm-hmm. Your, your standard, it's, it's easy. Every contractor can frame walls, put up drywall, what have you. These alternative techniques, a lot of times you end up more on your own, but I think there's some real advantages there too. Yeah. You know, um, First of all, I have to say it's because you want to. I mean, you, I think you kind of need a reason beyond just price to try to build it yourself. Gotcha. You know, alternative building, if you hire a company to do it, can cost twice as much as conventional sure. building because everything about it's not normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's often labor intensive. Uh, but when you do it yourself, then the materials cost a lot less. I mean, substantially less. Uh, but typically, you know, by the time you do cement stabilization and depending on your to- soil type, you may only save about 26% on the cost. So a lot of times the advantages is the fact that either your consciousness, you, you choose to live in something that doesn't off gas and isn't built with toxic uh, additives, um, or you just think it's beautiful and it's something that you want to do. Um, so it, it can't really be cost alone, though for some people that can be. But what you generally find is some people have developed autoimmune problems or sensitivities to chemicals, and you just decide, I, I want to live uh, free of that irritant, or I want to avoid ever developing uh, some kind of autoimmune response to the over 200 chemicals that off-gas in a conventional house. Uh, and quite frankly, a lot of times it's just because it's beautiful and it fits in with the landscape. And ultimately, a natural house can return to the land. I think one of the other things that people generally look at is uh, energy efficiency as well, right? So if you're trying to get to an 80% lifestyle or, hell, even a 50% lifestyle, and I want to cut my energy requirements by 50%, I, I have to think not just power generation. I have to think efficiency as well. And some of these uh, technologies, and you use aircrete, and you can talk about that if it fits in with this, are much better insulative-wise as far as keeping heat out or keeping cool in or in the winter keeping warm in and cold out. Yeah, um, you know, it takes um, really an ideal alternative house. You're going to use thermal mass and you're going to use insulation. Mm-hmm. But if I have to choose one or the other, I'm going to choose insulation every time because 
Um, I, I want to be able to set the temperature in my house. You know, I'm just spoiled that way. I'm sorry. I'm first world. I want I've, to choose yeah. my temperature. Uh, me too. When people say, well, I can live without air conditioning. I'm not sleeping with sweat in my neck in Texas. I'm not doing it. <laughs> exactly. Um, it, it doesn't even work in every climate. You know, now out yeah. here where we're at, uh, you can open a structure up at night, draft the air through, close sure. the windows when you get up or use an attic fan and you actually stay comfortable all day. Um, sure. And that's great. It kind of depends on what your goals are. Um, but alternative building, like as far as terms of air creek goes, you get insulation. And honestly, you know, the R value, the resistance to heat flowing through your wall in or out is actually about 10% less uh, than, say, fiberglass, which is mm. so you can kind of sort of compare it to conventional construction wall thickness to get some idea of how air creep, for example, would perform. Uh, straw bale building uh, is extremely insulative. Uh, so if you have, if you're in a place and you can have access to straw and you can do it affordably, uh, it's, 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 a, it's great. Either one works really great for insulation. Um, so, you know, when it comes to the cost of living, for example, when you're building alternative building, it's not just about the cost of the structure. It's about, well, you know, what is the operating cost? If I'm going to achieve that 80% lifestyle, how much am I going to have to spend if I'm going off grid on solar panels? You know, uh, um, I think the last time I checked, a pallet of solar panels um, is somewhere in the neighborhood of $6,800. You know, yeah. am I going to, and I have to buy it by the pallet. So, you know, can I cut, you know, my operating budget from buying one, uh, from two, two or three or four uh, pallets of panels down to one panel by having enough insulation or by designing a passive system that uses my environment most of the year to achieve you know, passive cooling, like letting the heat out at night and then closing it up during the day. Are you off-grid fully electrical-wise? I know you have a ton of solar out there. Are you relying exclusively on that, or do you have grid access? No, there's no grid access okay. here. There's no water access. There's no trash service. Um, there's no USPS mail service. Uh, it took a, almost a year to get FedEx in, out here. Uh, I was able to get UPS because what some people don't, they didn't want to deliver out here, but what some people don't realize is technically by their operating charter, uh, they had to agree to provide equal service to everyone um, or they can't operate. So uh, with a little arm twisting, uh, we finally got package delivery out here uh, and we wound up setting a, a, a locker down on the highway so that we don't have to drive quite so far to pick up USPS. And so that that's pretty amazing. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, can you talk maybe about some pros and cons of conventional versus alternative building? Um, and specifically when you get into an area like you're in or I'm in, honestly, we don't have to ask nobody any permission to do anything. And I think that also plays into that calculus. Yeah. Well, you know, I want to hit the, the biggest point right up front with alternative building. If you are in an area where you need permission or you choose to ask for permission, um, you have to realize that when you're asking for permission, you kind of sort of are asking for them to take responsibility also, mm -hmm. because if something goes wrong, you could sue them because they let you do it and you asked permission and they gave it. So generally, if you have to get permits uh, with most alternative construction, the, the answer is generally going to be no. However, you can get exceptions and you can push the issue as an owner builder uh, and you can do it anyway. Like technically, you can't build aircrete in California, but we've done it. 
okay. because there, there are exceptions and exemptions, uh, you know, uh, workarounds such as, for example, well, you, you can't have plumbing in because it can't be an occupied structure and it has to be under 400 square feet. So then we build it like an RV or we conceal plumbing underneath the slab about a quarter of an inch. And then yeah. after it's clear inspection, you do you go ahead and bust it out and do it. But, uh, you know, so there's a lot of gray areas there and it depends on your personal comfort zone and your your willingness to uh, stand up for what's right, uh, even if that means you have to take it to court without a lawyer. And so that's a major problem for a lot of people, you know, where we're at. If you're out in a county in Texas, you can pretty much do whatever you want to as long as you don't have sewage leaking onto someone else's property. Uh, yeah, the sheriff here told me, quote, until you're cooking meth, we don't care. Exactly. I mean, that, that was that was how much they didn't care. Exactly. Uh, you know, out here, we're so far uh, an inspection department would spend uh, three hours of his day just driving to and from yeah, one or two places. And, and it doesn't even exist here. Yeah. And so unless you're doing if you know, you should always be responsible and you should always be conscious of what you're doing to the environment. You know, in my opinion, I think septic tanks are terrible because they pollute groundwater. Um, but yet yeah, it's 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 official. It's allowed. So um, another pro, though, to be in uh, building off grid is that um, my operating expense per month is extremely low. And as I'm bringing on more and more food production, my grocery bill is going to nothing. No. We couldn't even buy trash service. So the con is I have to haul it out uh, once in a while. Let's go ahead and hit that real quick because I had saved it. But we have a question about exactly that. How are you dealing with trash combustion? Okay, so you know uh, we found that a a an aircrete insulated barrel uh, mm -hmm. with uh, a leaf blower and an L in it, so there's no direct infrared radiation, will incinerate anything, including a tire, with zero smoke. Oh wow! So typically, anything compostable we compost because that's in the desert, that's a big deal, uh, organic yep. matter. So anywhere yep. we can get organic matter, we're going to take it, we're going to compost it. Um, uh, anything else gets burned, uh, if it can burn to reduce the mass. And then, um, you know, we have a landfill uh, in a, you know, it's, it's a long drive away, but typically we, we synchronize our supply runs every month or two with hauling off that trash to either a landfill uh, or the city we're in, they provide dumpster uh, service to the uh, the city people. So kind of a gray area, but no one checks. So sometimes we're fortunate enough to be able to dispose of trash there. Um, yeah. Otherwise, there are families that are up on a paved road, like the only one in the county. Uh, and if you can find a, a uh, somebody to share dumpster costs with and someone who <laughs> has access to place a dumpster on the road, uh, then you can you know just drive a few miles and share a dumpster. And so, you know, that's that's a that's kind of a con is you have to become more responsible. But I would say it becomes a pro. The more responsibility you learn to handle yourself, the more independent you come. Um, it creates, if nothing else, a certain feeling of self-sufficiency and achievement. So it kind of depends on where your mindset is to where mm -hmm. some of these are pros or cons. Um, supply runs, you know, like we're saying, you know, we're talking, you know, 170, 180 miles round trip because Amazon or sent you a package through USPS and <laughs> they didn't deliver it. Yeah. Um, that could be a real problem. Um, uh, yeah. but the pros are peace. Uh, you, nobody's disturbing you out here. 
Yeah. Um, but there's also a higher cost of living. The closer you live to the normal life, the more expensive your lifestyle is. But then the more independence you gain, the higher that percentage of, of independence, uh, you have a lower operating cost anyway, and then it doesn't matter. So yeah. it, it's kind of like that balance between all of these things. Um, also, if if you need medical care, uh, you're not going to go 10 minutes down the road to a hospital. Um, you're going to need to know who in the area uh, has uh, wilderness medical training. You need to have it yourself. Otherwise, you're still talking about an hour and a half to get life flighted out of here, plus a, the tremendous expense of that. Um, so you have to take more responsibility. You can you can see that as a pro or a con. But, you know, some people as they get older and having lived a conventional life. Oh, gosh, you know, I got to go to, you know, people if they haven't taken care of themselves, they might have to go di to dialysis three times a week. How's that going to work when, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's it's basically a, a half to all day trip to go to somewhere to get care. And if you need real medical care, the nearest real hospital is a three and a half hour drive away at 80 miles an hour. So, you know, you have to consider uh, what your needs are in life. I think that really takes a turn too. the older we get. It does. Right. We tend to need more care the older we get, as especially the less community we have. Right. And we'll get into community in a bit. Uh, another question here. We'll go ahead and hit on the fly because it fits right in with what we're talking about. Hunter says, uh, no septic. How else do you deal with poop? What, what's your well? First your of all, solution? You absolutely can, and most people do just do septic out here. Okay. Um, and, and, and you could put in an aerobic system. In an aerobic system would be way more appropriate in the desert because you could mm -hmm. take the output water because everything in the desert is about water. Mm -hmm. uh, and so an aerobic system would allow you, you could then run that perhaps through a constructed wetland to polish it up a little more, and then you could use it to irrigate uh, either fruit trees or you know carbon-producing crops so that you can mulch and compost. Uh, but, you know, we use worm composting flush toilets. There's zero, and I mean zero discharge into the ground or anywhere else. Uh, and all it produces a carbon rich compost. And then the water is run into a constructed wetland, which if you're here in Texas, uh, the University of Texas has a basically an approved wetland guideline that you can yeah. follow as a replacement for a septic system. So okay. there's lots of so options. So the water takes... The solid waste to the worms, mm -hmm. and then the water continues down into basically a, a, a small lagoon. Yeah, basically it starts, it goes into a tank very much like a septic tank. And if you happen to have a downhill slope, this can all be gravity feed. Uh, but if it's not, then you have to have basically a grinder pump and a separation area to collect the water and pump it out. Okay. Uh, give it a lift. Um, but basically you have a biological sponge and you have all this life eating everything as it slowly goes through there. Um, and they built a system like this, a Sylvania uh, worm composting system, and they got it approved in Oregon. And they found that the water discharge is cleaner after going through this biological sponge than what most of the cities discharge into the creeks for your kids to play in. Yeah. But then that water goes into either more composting area or it goes into a constructed wetland, which I believe is the most responsible process. Plus, it's technically... Uh, approved by the law. I mean, you could even do the worm composting and put it out into a septic tank to be approved if you just want to be ecologically responsible. But you have to realize that when you have a living system, it needs regular watch and regular maintenance. It's not just yeah. like set it and forget it kind of thing. So it's yeah. one more thing for you to do. 
It's amazing what biology will do. One of the ways I started working with a highly invasive plant called water hyacinth was a study that was done with ducks. And, of course, I'm a duck guy. And they, they built these lagoons, and they pushed all the wastewater. And this is a commercial operation, so this is bad duck shit, right? <laughs> right. And they would put flush the water through a series of lagoons. And they said exactly what you said. And all they were doing is putting the water hyacinth in the lagoons. They didn't even have it anywhere near the level you're talking. And the water that came out was better than the water the ducks were drinking. Yeah. Which is crazy. And then they were feeding the hyacinth back to the ducks. And, like, their their egg laying went up. The size of their eggs went up. Their body weight went up. And their health issues went down. And that was all they did. So we can we can take that and we can use that for ourselves as well. Absolutely. The more life you can send it through, the better. Uh, you know, we use ducks here and instead of doing aquaponics, you know, we take their waterfowl, right? So they're going to foul some water and yeah. we take we take the water they swim and poop in every day and we dump it into our hybrid aquaponics system. And that drives the fertility for our gardening sure. system. And then the water gets cleaned up the more cycles it makes through your biological filter. Sure, that makes perfect sense. And the other thing, with, we started out talking about waste disposal. What makes me think of is when I was a kid in Pennsylvania, we had private trash removal and we paid every week. Like we got a bill once a month. You paid by how many bags they took away. And they came once a week. They counted the bags and like ticked the ledger. That's how old this is. And my grandparents, having lived through the Great Depression, well, if you had to pay an extra 50 cents for a bag, that was too much. So it was first you better eat it because we paid for it. Then if, if you can't eat it, maybe the dog will eat it. If it's not something the dog will eat, the chickens will eat it. If the chickens won't eat it, well, it'll go in the compost, and the chickens won't eat it out of the compost, but it'll make compost. Then will it burn? We had a burn barrel like you were talking about. So the amount of garbage that actually left the property was incredibly small versus today. And, of course, we didn't have Amazon bringing boxes of shit three or four (laughs) times a week either back then, right? Yeah, it was amazing. That that couple of years that I lived – without any income and growing my own food uh, completely um, neglecting any nutritional deficiencies we might have had um, was actually that was one of the epiphanies I had at the end of that. It's like, man, I'm not buying trash packed in trash and I don't need trash service that I have to pay for. I don't have to pay to go to the gym because I'm working physically all day. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's quite a shift and we can learn so much from that, that depression experience. And when you don't have trash and you put it to use the discharge, for, you know, for example, a, a family of four, we implement all of this process. And basically the only thing that really goes out the door is uh, some plastic, which could technically even go so far as to be converted back into petroleum products like, you know, something that would run in a diesel engine yeah. um, or uh, it could be melted down and made in something. But basically we just have some can- some cans, some bottles and some trash. And, you know, if you were, if you wanted to, you could even recycle those things. Yeah. You have a line here that I really like because it's, it's clear you listen to our show. Uh, you said, well, I take responsibility for all aspects of your life versus just taking the hopium and waiting for a savior. So hopium is clearly a jackism. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I believe that the powers that be, whatever you want to assign that to, they use primarily fear and false hope to control everybody and keep you impotent and unable to problem solve. And then they have to sell service that you have to buy. So, you know, 
I don't think it's wise to put your life uh, and ever and the, as your, the aspects and the control of your life uh, into someone else's hands. Uh, I mean, when was the last time they actually did something that mattered and benefited your life? It's likely almost never, or it's in some trivial, meaningless way. Like, you know, we're going to give 12 trillion to Turkey for transgender studies. And then we're going to give the Americans $1,200 one time while we force you to shut down. Right. Yeah. Um, so when you put the responsibility in someone else's hands and you wait for a savior to come from outside, you're disempowering yourself. And so in any area, in any capacity that you can, you should get in. I believe anyway, you should get into the habit of becoming self-sufficient in those areas and not trusting. Uh, I mean, like, you know, you can't trust them to spend your money in any way that benefits you. You can't trust them to approve something that isn't going to turn out to be poisonous and have massive lawsuits over it 10 years down the road. And so you need to be involved in your own life and make your own choices and not defer that to someone else's judgment who, quite frankly, at the end of the day, don't give two, two cents about you. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. You brought up the whole lockdown time. I, I think you've been where you are for quite a while, and I'm pretty yes. sure you were already there when all this happened. Now, I'm guessing that you and your neighbors didn't give two shits about lockdown. Oh no, they they had the, the power the, the power lines because we're so remote. Uh, yeah. The power lines, something happened and the power went down up on the main road, and you know we didn't even know it went down, nor did we yeah. care. Uh, they had lockdowns, uh, you know, the, during the whole mass. It's like I was living here, and other than the occasional trip in the town, I even forgot that any of that was going on. It just had zero effect on me. And then when I did go to town, they're like threatening me because I'm I wasn't going to play the game, and yeah, oh, you gotta do this and give you a ticket. And I's like, okay, whatever, give me. Yeah. Ticket. I'm not. Ticket. I'm not doing it. Uh, yeah. But you know that. Way, I got a burn yeah. barrel at home. Give me your ticket. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I could go into a whole way to handle all that without fear and get rid of it through yeah. the mail. But you know, the point being that in my in in my life, I think that freedom and choice, uh, uh, free will, self determination is one of the most important primary aspects of natural law. And it's very important in my heart. So I'm just not going to comply uh, with stupidity. Um, and I'm not going to accept, you know, like if you look up the word mandate and find out what that actually means, as opposed to just blind obedience, you realize that it's quite voluntary anyway. So, you know, but living way out here, and that's one of the pros is there's nobody like running around trying to police you. None of the neighbors care whatsoever. And it just has zero impact on our life. And probably, you know, you could even achieve levels of independence. Like where you live, you know, you live far enough outside of that kind of stupidity that you're going to be fine. Yeah. Um, I was going to say during, I, I feel a lot like you, but I realized you had a lot less concern than I did. Like, because I still had to interact with what was around me because we do. Right. So you become right. dependent on what you have, which right. is a lesson in of itself. So I would have to go to a store and like, you want to put a mask on, sir? And like, no. Or like, would you like a mask? I already have one. And you just walk past them. But it was there. Like where, where you were, it had to be just like, like you said, you forgot. Back when you said that, I was thinking that kind of happened for me, too. I would leave. And I'm like, oh, yeah, everybody's still doing this weird shit. Yeah. Or it was less because even around here, most people like were like, yeah, we're not doing that. But you go 20 minutes south and you hit Fort Worth proper area and everybody was doing it. Or then even when Texas quit, 
like if we went out of state and you're like, oh, wait a minute, you you're still no, I'm not doing this. <laughs> yeah, it, it, you like you're the crazy one. Right. You know? Well, it, it was it was pretty funny. Um, I I kind of reached a point of zero tolerance of BS. You know, I had to go uh, refile. I was moving my property out of my name into trust and whatnot. And I had to go into the courthouse during this time. And, you know, oh. they got the two corn fed uh, uh, boys sitting up at the corner. Sheriff you kind of got to do what they tell you there. Uh, right? Well, actually, I just asked them. I said, well, you know, this, this you know, I've had some paperwork. I didn't just mm-hmm. walk in there blind. It's like, well, here's what the law says. Here's what a mandate is. And yeah. you have an oath, right? Okay. You got an oath to defend a constitution. So are you going to interfere with my right to contract and my right to do this? Am I going to have to sue you? Or are you going to let me do, go in here and do my business? And they just bow their heads in shame. And, you know, people are following you around griping, complaining and threatening the whole way. But I was in and out, did my business. You know, I went to a grocery store that came in that was like, you know, a little bit on the liberal side, but they had lots of organic food. And, you know, they had like a little door sentry uh, that tried to get in your way. And I just kind of darted around and went in. They followed me. Then the manager was griping. But I was entering. I was adding up all the prices on my phone. When I was getting to the checkout, the general manager had come out and they were threatening. I said, well, the only question I have is, are you going to sell me these goods or not? And if they weren't going to, I'd already added it up and I had a body cam on. I was just going to add the tax, throw the cash on there and walk off and let them keep the change. I wasn't even going to give them a choice. Yeah. Um, but that's just because I have certain beliefs that there's you should resist evil. <laughs> yeah, I got it. But you. I also wasn't stupid. I was watching the clock. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't going to stand around till you know, Barney Fife could show up. Could uh, show I was up. in and Man, out. I was thinking a little different. You were in it like a tax office or something like that. I was thinking of a courtroom because the judge will totally throw your ass in the clink. Like, well, that's okay. That's okay. If you yeah. want to dismiss the case, we're good with that too. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what does life at 80% outside the normal systems actually look like? And, you know, people might even think to themselves, like, could they really be happy in, in, in that environment? Well, I think there, there's part of the 80% life comes with a certain adjustment. You know, like when I was living the normal life, I thought I needed, you know, 3,000 square feet to live in. And oddly enough, life got more simple and less uh, intrusive and less expensive. And that brought about a lifestyle that made me feel even better. And so I changed my expectations and got happier you know, the 80% life is like, what does the typical day look like? Well, you know, some days I bust my butt and work way harder than I'd work at a job because I'm responsible for providing. I can't just do nothing and, and wait for that external savior to come. I do have to take responsibility. But the majority of the days, like once the main garden's up and running, the main thing is like, oh, I'm going to go out. I've got my plan already made. You know, I'm looking at my list. It's like, okay, well, these tomatoes or these plants are done. We're ripping those out. I've already got other sp- trans Transplants ready. I have to put them in. Um, I have to maybe move some duck water. Uh, I may have to deal with some pests. So maybe on, on a typical day, I spend two hours in the garden, which I happen to love anyway. Uh, the rest of the day, honestly, is spent uh, either building something for my life, improving my situation, like maybe, you know, putting some paver stones down under the, the carport slash water catchment. Uh, or just uh, coming up with new ideas to improve my life or thinking about something that's going on and make, uh, you know, formulating a sound decision. But basically it amounts to a total of three or four hours of work a day. When I say work, I don't, it's not at all unpleasant to me. 
Um, and that means also there's no drudgery. Like one day I'm the plumber, the next day I'm the mechanic having to figure out how to replace my U-joints or, yeah. uh, or, or the wheel bearings or, you know, figure out wh- why, a, uh, what, you know, like I don't know. So I've got to go on the internet and find out why I'm misfiring. Like I don't know it. So I have to solve the problem and then execute on it and finish it. But it, it eliminates boredom and it grows your skills as next day you're yeah. the electrician. The next day, uh, you're the, the plant expert, uh, or you're the, the duck whisperer, you know, yeah. there's always something new, but when things are set up and running smooth, you're talking about three or four, uh, enjoyable hours of work a day. And then honestly, I spend the rest of the time, you know, just considering how I can maybe start a new online business or expand uh, something because most business you have to adapt and change to what's going on. You can't just set something up and then expect it to go on, you know, because competition comes, other people do things better, new technology replaces it. So it's really more a lifestyle of, of personal growth, honestly. You know, to me, Part of this whole lifestyle of being a homesteader is do you have you, what you were saying or anything. You have really two kinds of work, planned work and emergency work or planned work and required work that wasn't scheduled, however you want to phrase it. And I love the planned work. Like today, when I get done, I'm going to go work on a drip irrigation system that I've been building. And uh, I'm actually, I'm going to take it from design to build stage at this point. And so that's fun. What sucks is when you're like, so I have this thing planned. And then something breaks and you need to fix it first. That's suck level one. Suck level two is the thing breaks and you need to fix it first and it's complicated and or expensive to fix it. That's suck level two. Suck level three is, and if you don't do it, something's going to die. Right. Right. So how it moves up the priority list, it also moves up the suck level list. But it's all part of it. And the key is to like, you just go, okay, so I'm going to do the drip irrigation system Thursday. Right. You just move the schedule thing out and you do the immediate need thing. And the more maintenance you do and the better you do your design and your upgrades, the less of that happens. But people have asked me, like, when will that ever stop? And the answer is never. You can reduce the frequency, but not the fact that it occurs. No, no, that, that's the thing. You become really good at prioritizing it. In fact, a lot of the things done during the depression, uh, we can learn from because they developed over time. Oh, priority list. These are the things that work because I, I've been in suck level two and three so many times. I've learned how to redo what I do to reduce that. But yeah, I mean, there's always something unexpected. So you have to set priorities and everything has to get shifted according to whatever's going on. You know, like we had this little freeze. Uh, we even got down to 17 down here. Uh, and, and in the priorities of doing everything that I did, building a structure to insulate my water pumps didn't make the list yet. And now suddenly, oh, crap, it's going to be 17 tomorrow. Uh, yeah. We're going to go harvest all the tomatoes, cut down all the greens, get everything yeah. out of the garden that can possibly be put up and preserved. And we've got to insulate the pumps or disconnect them and drain them and blow the water line out. So yeah. <laughs> sometimes you're just uh, uh, all of your plans are just out the window because survival. We need water to live. So, yeah, this takes top priority. And it's interesting that sometimes you do a thing and it it makes sense that it will work. And then it didn't quite work. Like I had a, what I would call a minor failure with exactly what you're talking about blowing pipes out. So I have... Um, an array where the water comes out of my uh, water softener and uh, pressurized system. I have a pressure tank in my garage, and it also goes to the irrigation side of the whole property. 
And what I've always done is I cut that water off on the irrigation side, but the house still works. I have everything wrapped up, heat tape, all that, and everything works. But what happens is then I have no water on the property. I only have it in the house, and the animals still need water. So you turn it back on, and you got to blow everything out again. So I'm like, well, dummy, put a second cutoff valve in and put another hose bib in right there. That all gets wrapped up then. But then I don't want the water into that hose bib. It's all weird shape, getting that heat tape on there. So, like, I put in a, a valve on both sides of it, and then I put a T in that would drain the water out of the hose bib piece and just open up a little straight valve of that T, and the gravity would take care of it. There you go. But yeah. <laughs> so I did it the first day, and it turned out that the water dripped out slow enough that it still plugged the hole in the bottom of the straight valve. And then it froze the straight valve. So nothing broke and I could run water for the birds, but you, once you did it, you couldn't drain it again. And I ended up setting a little space heater there and building a tent around it and melting it off. And then I just figured out, I have it all there because my air compressor is right in the next door and I have a hose that I hook up and blow out the property. So if I would, do my thing, give them water, open that valve, and stick that compressor on there for two seconds. Everything was good. But you don't figure that out until it gets tested by nature, you know. And it it, it got tested with, like you said, it was like sub-20. Exactly. I mean, that's a great example you gave there. I mean, it's just, it's a process of, of testing it against nature and realizing, oh, I got to make some improvements, which is kind of an ongoing, almost forever sort of thing. <laughs> now you use 80% as your metric. So you strive to do that. So it looks like 80% of your own food. Mm-hmm. How are you approaching that? What crops are you growing? Are you doing any animal products? How does that look? Okay, so, you know, it depends on your lifestyle. Um, Like out here, um, you have to be prepared, and it's not necessarily in season, but technically if it's for survival, they really, there's provision to allow that. But like, you know, in spring, there's a herd of 200 elk going by, uh, and they're about a mile and a half out. So what do you do? Um, You're not prepared, so you either hop in your truck and try to get ahead of them, or you take the long shot with the SKS, you know. Um, But if you're not doing any foraging and hunting, um, then what I find and what, you know, it, it's kind of like from experience you learn, you can't count on designing this for 100 or 80% and actually always getting 80%. You have to design your life because some things are going to fail. Maybe you have a, maybe one year you planted a whole bunch of tomatoes and you're just going to eat fried green tomatoes all year for whatever reason. Yeah. But then the, the hornworms come in or, or the uh, shield bugs come in, something comes in and wipes out a portion of your crop or you do something stupid or your system breaks in some way because it wasn't robust enough and then you have a failure somewhere. So generally you over design, but if you're talking about terms of what does it take to grow all of your own food, you know, a lot of people have a flower bed full of vegetables and like I grow all the vegetables I need. What they're saying is I can add something to every meal and that's all I feel like I need. But if you depend upon that, if your life depends upon that, um, then I look at what's the most efficient way to do it. And therefore, that means what's the smallest area that I can do that in and what methods allow me to do that? Because if you grow, if you have enough broad acres land, you have good rainfall and you have fertile soil, you can just you can put out one to five acres on the ground. But out here, when everything has to basically be a container gardening, wicking bed type uh, style or aquaponics with a wicking bed on top, then you need 800 square feet 
of growing area per person. Um, and that only works under the condition that you grow what you need. And, and you also have to think about, okay, I'm talking about survival here. I'm not talking about thriving and eating everything I want. Let's just start with survival and we'll expand from there later. So what that means to me is I'm, if I'm going to grow 80% of my food, I aim at the 100% mark because I'll probably get the 80% mark. It's kind of like, you know, if I, if I aim for the moon and land on the mountaintop, it's not so bad. But if I, if I aim for the molehill, I'm never getting on the mountain. Sure. And, and so um, I grow, I find that 800 square feet, and by the time you put paths in there to walk, you're up to around 1,200 square feet. But 800 square feet of growth per person. But then you have to choose crops that may not be the crops you like. And we're talking about a 1,200 calorie per day survival. We're not talking about, you know, 2,800 calories of going out and working hard. We're talking just getting by. And so at that rate, you have to look at the crops that can actually produce what you need in the least possible space. So there's a book out there. It's called How to Grow More Vegetables Than You Thought Possible. I think it's on the seventh edition now. And the most valuable thing in that book is called um, the master charts, because in the master charts, it tells you, you know, how the spacing in flats, the spacing in a, a, a raised bed situation, the spacing in rows. And it tells you um, the calories per pound of food and the calories or, or the number of crops or the, the expected harvest per square foot in, in your growing area. So what I've learned is that things like sweet potatoes hit very high because you get a lot of calories per square foot and you get to eat the leaves, which increases the root production. So you have to think in terms of multitasking. Um, and then in our case, you know, we gather organic matter from the landscape and compost things to add back to the system to bring fertility back. If you're just doing gardening, then you may have to grow a certain like 60 percent of your crop might have to be high carbon crop to produce compostable material. So you have to think about what you're doing and the method of growing to get down to this 800 square feet of garden bed requires that you start your seeds in flats. You know, you may have 144 plants per square inch, which makes them easy to care, easy to put them under automatic water. And then the last 30 days before they reach maturity, you're plucking them out of the flat and you're putting them into the garden to finish the last 30 days and produce their crop. And that allows you to take this massive area and condense the, the nursery care down to a very small area. And in this small area, it's easy to maintain. It's easy to keep an eye on. And then it gets expanded out to the large growing area only as it's needed. And it requires that you develop the timing. So this isn't something you're going to go from, I'm going to, I'm going to take a bag of, of survival seeds and put them in my closet to, Oh, crap's hit the fan. And now I'm going to go garden and survive. You actually have to, develop the the discipline like like if you're working a job guess what you may have things for that planting that your job will stop you from doing and you will never succeed at that while you're working a full-time job or you have to be extremely disciplined to be out there gardening by moonlight which is not so bad actually and um <laughs> you know so it's this skill set of learning to make this work in that space in combination with growing the most calorie efficient crops, meaning what's going to produce the most calories per square foot. You could say, well, gosh, I can raise a uh, hundred pounds of, of uh, squash in this area, for example, but how many calories are there in a pound of squash? How many meals do you eat in a day? How many people are you feeding? And so that's a long answer to basically saying yeah. it takes practice, 
the minimum you can do it with discipline and practice and the application of that knowledge is 800 square feet. And technically it would reach 100 percent. But you can't you can't realistically expect that. So you always want to put your effort where 20 percent of the effort is going to give you 80 percent of the results. Gotcha. And what particular crops do you grow on your homestead for your family? What are like your top five? Well, you know, what we do is, first of all, we have to supplement. So we go, you know, you have hunting and you have foraging and yep. the meat, the meat, if, you, if you're a vegetarian or a vegan, this is extremely hard. Um, I don't know if you've mm -hmm. ever seen how much a vegan eats if you, if they have to do any physical work versus. You don't meat. have to uh, choir preach like, yeah, I got yeah. you. So um, there's a lot of variability here. But for us, you know, like I said, we can take the long shot. We got a good scope and I can yeah. I can I can shoot ahead of the movement. So we can we can, you know, regardless of the, the hunting season, we can bring in survival food on that alone. But we aim for being able to produce everything we want. But we also like to eat things that we just like. So for yeah. us, we do grow a lot of sweet potato, which we happen to really like. And it fits mm -hmm. really well because we eat a lot of the greens in our salads. We grow a lot of Swiss chard. Um, I eat uh, I love salad just because I love salad. Um, mm -hmm. And if you eat it within 15 minutes of picking it, it actually is nutritious. So, you know, we have a rotation set up where we have a couple heads of lettuce that are being planted and harvested every single day. So there's okay. a lot of salads. And into that salad, we mix uh, squash. We obviously have lots of tomatoes, um, uh, you know, really. Uh, and, and depending on the season, too, the season dictates what we grow. Like right now, the freeze killed Everything. Almost everything, yeah. but some of the green onions. So we had to replant our cabbage and we had to replant our green onions. We had to replant our mustard greens. Um, and so it, it really we we let the season kind of dictate what we can grow. But then we grow watermelon because I love watermelon. We grow uh, the local cantaloupe here or the Pecos cantaloupe. And so we grow things we like, but then we learn the efficiency of harvest. Like when you have a melon, you don't just eat the middle out and throw it away. You dry the seeds, you baste them, you roast them. You got something better with, with oil and protein. Uh, and then you take the rind and you shave off the hard part and you throw it in, either in a 50 gallon drum or you can, uh, cause I don't like, I don't like canning. Canning takes yeah. forever, but mass fermentation like for one season you know you, you literally would throw onions and carrots and and, and apples into a 50 gallon drum with a two percent salt solution and lacto ferment the whole stinking garden at the end of the season and it took two hours to do um, oh, wow. yeah so um we we tend to have a lot of fermented food so we make use of everything but what we grow in the garden for us is primarily sweet potatoes and we and a lot of stuff for salads with add-ins you know of watermelons and fruits and then of course you know we're planting fruit trees but you know that's going to take four years to come into fruition um so that's what i like is the hardy crops i want to grow things like turnips you know because you can bake a turnip and it's actually pretty good and it Once grows you bake it, it's all right yeah <laughs> yeah it, it grows in season i don't really like beets but i know that i need the nutrition and so we'll grow we'll throw beets in there um so we tend to grow just those simplistic crops because that's what we like now we also grow some some heritage uh, pre 1800s wheat because it doesn't my wife kind of got sensitive and got what they call celiac disease which is really leaky gut syndrome which is really leads to the wheat uh, the way it's processed the fact that it's just starch and the fact that it's got a lot of glyphosate in it uh, and so 
and it's been manually, it's not GMO, but it's been manually crossed with other grasses that probably wouldn't have happened in nature. So when you get a wheat pre-1800s, you don't get an insulin response. Like mm -hmm. modern wheat, you eat a slice of that, and it spikes your blood sugar as hard as eating six tablespoons of table sugar. So we actually grow wheat uh, in, in the ground, in season, uh, and it allows us to get, you know, maybe 20 to 60 pounds of, of, of wheat that we can turn into our own fresh bread. And I know that's not... Uh, really, truly paleo per se, uh, if you're trying to avoid starches, but we tend to eat more practically with what will grow in our climate because, yeah. you know, I could say I want to grow uh, a particular thing, but we have to adapt. Like, for example, uh, zucchini squash, the, the squash bugs pretty much wipe it out all the time. So we have to grow a more, uh, we have to grow a, we have an heirloom variety that we grow that's different. So we grow lots of squash, uh, during the winter, lots of turnips, lots of greens, lots of potatoes, uh, lots of melons, lots of leeks to add flavor. There, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the vines, this is a trombuccino, and it, you can use it as a summer or a winter squash. And yes. the vines of these are just like about as big as your little finger, and they're hard. And the, the bugs will go at them, but they'll survive. And the vine borers, they just don't really dig those vines. There's not a lot of... A lot of vine to bore in on those things because they're so hard and fibrous. And I'm, I'm big on that. Adapt to what will grow where you are. There's so many people like they, they see a thing like Sepp Holzer grew a lemon in the Alps. Yeah. Are you yeah. Sepp Holzer? No. Figure out how to feed yourself first. And exactly. then if you want to do something fancy, go do something fancy. Exactly. You start you start with the basics and you learn because a lot of it has to be adapted to your climate. And those things that we're growing grow well here. Uh, there's a book called JDAM, Natural Farming. It's, you know, it's, it's just it's letters that stand for a word. I don't remember what at the, at the moment, but it allows you to basically make your own soap base and then use sulfur and things that are not poisonous at all. And then you're able to control mildew and bugs and all of these things affordably, cheaply and in bulk. And then there's things like, you know, depending on how far you want to go with this, you can use ducks like we do for fertility. You could put your own urine like we've done experiments in aquaponics. And from experience in small systems and just extrapolating the bigger picture with math, which I know can not necessarily be perfect, but it gives you the idea that it's not impossible to use your own urine to provide almost 100% of the fertility or the nitrogen that you need for your garden. So um, you can get really obsessive with this kind of thing and you can go all the way. I, I tend to kind of poo-poo this immediate attitude that people have that say, well, you can't do everything yourself. And I, I say, well, why don't you say you don't want to do everything yourself? Because yeah. uh, in reality, what do you think our ancestor did a couple hundred years ago or a few thousand years ago? They pretty much did their survival completely themselves. Um, and there's always going to be barter and trade. And maybe if you're better at business, you need to uh, hire some people and put them on a corner of your land in exchange for housing and work. Uh, and let them produce your food. You know, there's always barter. Maybe you need to find the neighbor. Like in California, there's a guy that uh, grows avocados and, you know, he can have a, a CSA drop shipping program where you get your avocados from him and you get your squash from somebody else. Like you have to modernize it and realize you don't have to do everything yourself. Um, but 
I guess what I'm saying is avoid the attitude of I can't do it or the automatic program of, of I can't do it because there's always a way to do it, even if that means I am a good businessman and I'm paying someone else to produce my food the way I want it produced. Um, like in McAllen, Texas, there's a lot of farmland. You can go down there to a farmer and say, you know, what would you charge me for five acres of watermelon or an acre of sugar cane? And you can literally in advance, it takes, yep have to plan a couple years out, but you can basically buy an acre of food and then you just have to send a trader down there to pick it up. Hmm. Uh, and so there's lots of ways to do this. So don't get stuck into the either or attitude. You know, there's always creative ways to achieve what you want to. That is 100%, but yet somehow sometimes it's through other people. And depending on how obsessive you are about it, it can be 100% on your do it yourself kind of thing. The real question is, do you want to make that effort? Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, I'll be straight up. I don't want to do everything. Exactly. The older I get, the less I don't want the less I want to do everything, right? You know, there's people ask me all the time, why don't you have rabbits? Well, I like rabbits. I don't need another thing to do. And my wife won't eat the rabbit, so I'd be doing it for just me. If my wife ate rabbit, I might be willing to do the thing. And, like, everything adapts to your family, you know, and, and your, your life. Let's talk a little bit about the building side of things. Because you use a... Uh, a thing called aircrete mm-hmm. to build structures and you've built quite a few of them now. I don't think you've built anywhere near as many as you've built now the last time you're on the show, yeah. but can we start out with tell people what is aircrete? Okay. So aircrete, uh, the elevator speech about aircrete is that it's Portland cement that has been inflated with air bubbles six times in volume. And why six times is because if you go more than that, it becomes weaker. If you go less than that, it, it, it starts to lose its ability to insulate you. So okay. aircrete is kind of a buzzword for what is codified and known in engineering as cellular cement. It's been around since at least the 60s that I can tell. But aircrete is the homemade version of what is known as uh, uh, aerated autoclave cement or AAC, which is a commercial product that they do build with. The difference being the homemade version has to be kept moist and it cures at home over the, over 28 days. And the consistency depends on you and your attention. Whereas AAC, uh, is something that's cured in steam, basically in an, in, in an autoclave under heat okay. and steam. So it's a consistent, strong product. And the homemade version can have a lot of variability. Um, and so, Typically, aircrete's not the code-approved version, but it's about a quarter of the cost. And and how do you make it? So we take, uh, typically, you know, I like to use what's available off the shelf. Yeah, you can go out and buy a $38,000 machine that'll make it for you. Um, But I find that with an 8-amp drill, a barrel on a pivot, and a 30-inch triple-blade mud mixer like this, um, we're able to uh, make it quite effectively and affordably. So we add a, a five, it depends on your bag. If you have 94 pound bags or you have 92 pound bags, you either add five and a half uh, or six gallons of water and you mix a slurry. And then you have a sol- another five gallons of water that has basically, I, you know, just to help you understand, it's like soap. You're blowing bubbles. Okay. So um, you can buy an agricultural product. Like you can use... Um, 14 to 18 ounces of Dawn dishwashing soap, uh, or you can go buy an agricultural foaming solution, or you can get foam from the fire department, um, or you can get a a purpose-made vermilion foaming agent for cement. 
Okay. And basically you have a, a wand, which is a piece of pipe with a whole bunch of uh, fine stainless steel wool in it. So when you push that water and the air through there, it's like millions of little, you know, bubble things like the kids have blowing bubbles. And what you get out is a very, very fine bubble. If we blow those bubbles into the bottom of that barrel and we mix it with the mixer until we have six cubic feet. So basically we're using soap bubbles to put the bubble into the cement and then it holds it there uh, with the viscosity of the mix until it can set up, which, you know, in about 20 hours, depending on temperature, it's, it's ready to stack another layer on and build or cut and move. Okay. Okay. So if we were building a structure and we were pouring walls, we'd mix as much as we could in one go. We pour that wall or walls and then we got to wait basically a full day. You said 20 hours, but let's call it a day. Right. Right. And then we can pour our next layer. Right. And then we got to wait. And then we can pour our next layer. And we can keep doing that till we get our walls up to the height that we wanted. Exactly. And if you're building a big house, I know we build tiny houses here. And a lot yeah. of people are always like, why are they so small? Can I have a big house? Y you yeah. can. Um, but if you're doing it yourself, you also have to throw in the factor of how much am I going to do in a day? So sometimes you're you're pouring those forms and moving them around. And then when you come back around, then you move up a level and you go back around. And yeah. so I love slip forming. You may see it around you in the city where they're building bridges and they put in these forms, they mm -hmm. fill it with cement, then they move the forms up, or maybe they construct the forms all at once. Um, you can also build with blocks, but I really like that monolithic structure because it's, it's stronger uh, and you don't lose the insulation uh, where the mortar joints are, the brick, because mm -hmm. I can pull out my thermal camera and I can see, you know, heat coming in through those mortar joints. So, okay. Slip forming, like you're talking about, there is what I like to do. It's it's faster, it's stronger, it's easier. If you know, um, and slip forming means you don't have to buy a a fortune in in uh, forms to form the whole house in and pour it all at once. Yeah, because you can, like you said, you keep moving up. So we filled up to here. Now we the wall's done, so we move the form up on the wall. Exactly. And so we say, even though that material is reusable, it still has an expense. Yeah. Right. We've reduced the total quantity of materials that we need. Um, my other thought is with these small houses, and you correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding with the Zeracrete stuff, especially before, because you coat it with something when you're done, right? But yeah. before you do that, it's actually pretty easy to cut. Mm -hmm. So it would seem like if you wanted to build a house, it might make sense to build kind of like what would be like your bedroom suite first. And then if you wanted to have a bathroom, you could like then build that and you cut a hole in the wall. Now you got a door and now, okay, yeah. now I want a more proper living area. So I build a living area adjacent and cut a hole in the wall. And then maybe I need a bedroom for the kids so mm -hmm. I can, and a kitchen. And so you could go modular with it. And that way, if you're doing, especially like off grid remote camp, something like that, at least when you get the first one done, you've got a proper structure to stay inside because I've seen people that do stuff like, well, we're going to build a house, but we'll do get a travel trailer. And if it's the middle of summer or middle of winter, they real quick figure out that sucks, <laughs> right? If it's spring or fall, a travel trailer is great. You know, uh, a travel trailer in the winter, if it's really cold climate is like, it's like, a, it's actually, it seems like it's colder in there than it is outside. I mean, it's, it's yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, you're, you're, that, that's brilliant, actually, you know, modular building. And it's my preference because, first of all, 
if you haven't been doing construction and you go from working in an office or working in retail or 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 working for a corporation and then suddenly you're out there trying to build a whole house i mean i was in i i i acted as ever from air conditioning to electrical to to any part of the job to be in the general contractor and just hiring other people i worked all of that and even as a general contractor, just overseeing every single nail and screw and, and piece of gravel that goes into that job can be overwhelming. So when you build modularly like that, there's less of an overwhelm, I quit kind of situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and once you get a little win under your belt, you're inspired and now you're charged in such a way nothing's going to stop you. Um, but, yeah, you build the master bedroom with a kitchenette that can stay or come out later. And then you yeah. basically live in your master bedroom. And when you do this intentionally from the very beginning, you've maybe you lay the whole slab or maybe you've just planted out to add your foundation later. Um, and some, and that allows you one, if you, if you're on a limited budget and you cut out all the extras, even limited income can, can build up to that. And typically, uh, you can, you can cut aircrete with a, anything that'll cut wood, a handsaw, a pocket knife. Uh, in fact, when it's within the first 24 hours, you can carve it with a fork or spoon and people make statues out of it. Um, so it's easy to cut and you can cut it out later, but when you plan ahead, you go ahead and you put a door frame in because typically where you're placing doors and windows, you need a header and something to transfer the, the, the load above, which may be a roof, uh, to beams uh, or support. So typically you build that into the structure, even if you, um, pour it full of aircrete, uh, you know where it is and you can come back and, and, and cut it out. Um, and the aircrete itself provides the insulation. But it's aircrete is really more like it's a building system. So it kind of like in the way, you know, how sheetrock's all crumbly white uh, gypsum in the middle and it has paper on either side or a, a door made out of fiberglass or a surfboard. If you take off the exterior coating, it's it's pretty flimsy. You know, who's who's going to what front door is going to keep the wind out if it's just styrofoam. Mm. Uh, but then when you put the fiberglass on either side, it adds that rigidity. You see, aircrete is compressively okay to build with, but tensile strength, you know, sideways push, yeah. uh, it breaks much easier because it's not uh, a cement as in sand and gravel in Portland. Yeah. It's, it's kind of its own thing, so you have to think of it that way. So you have to add a tensile strength. So we typically add a commercial roofing fabric to it, or we add fiberglass stucco mesh to it that gives it a tensile strength of 150 plus pounds per square inch. And when that's attached and your final coat goes on, which is basically a synthetic stucco, uh, it glues it to the wall and adds your tensile strength. Mm-hmm. And, and so that you can, you can literally just drill a hole through it, stick a saws on there, you know, cut out a hole and there you go. Build your next room and you that's can build really your cool. house. As you go, just plan and know where everything goes and stick to your plan. And modular building is a great way to go. And you don't have to have a tiny house at all. What we chose to do here is that rather than even like stick the buildings together, because we're going to have uh, we have rentals now that when pe- we hold our workshops, people can actually come and stay and live in Aircrete that couple weeks. Um, and then like if, if you wanted to just come out and stay in Aircrete to, you know, kick the tires um, it's, it's here, but what we're doing is we're building a courtyard that blocks out that hot, dry desert wind. And we're going to have a food forest. That's also going to be comfortable to hang out in inside of this courtyard. Surrounded by these buildings. Exactly. Oh, cool. Yeah. 
And we're going to connect each one with a wall in between and have some stairs up to the top so that you can go up and use the, the basically the patio space on top of the structures to, you know, look at the stars if you want. So, you know, the sky is the limit. It's up to your imagination. But modular lets you get a win under your belt. It lets you build it as you can afford to uh, and in the time you have. Me, by myself, like block building, if I'm building a small 450-square-foot house that has a small bathroom, a small walk-in closet, a small bedroom, a small uh, living space, and a small kitchen, or uh, then in, in basically uh, two and a half hours a day, I can go out, remove the previous blocks, cut, up, cut them up, move them, mortar them, put them up, clean up the molds, reassemble and pour with air crate. So, and I can go up one foot a day. Hmm. So by myself, I go up in height one foot per day. And with air crate, you can't, I mean, 12 inches, depending on what foaming agent you're using, if you're using dish soap, uh, yeah. 12 inches really is the maximum pour depth. If you're using, um, vermilion however you can actually go up 19 inches a day so there's a limit to how far you can pour each day anyway so mm. it, it allows like if you're really industrious you can go out do this early in the morning and then go do your job or, or okay. go out after work and do it and so you can get this done in a in a way that is friendly to kind of your lifestyle and what you can realistically do yourself in a day yeah we definitely talked about the timeline last time i had you on and like I said, I don't remember when that was. It was pre-COVID. So it's been four years or so. Um, but I, what has always impressed me with this as a building tech is it's this alternative thing that can be done with a great deal of DIY. It has all this stuff going for it. And what it immediately makes me think about that's totally different is the whole Earthship thing. And I've just seen so many of those that, I'm doing this and that. And the guy, he gets interviewed and he's like halfway built the damn thing. Like, how long you been here? Oh, eight years. <laughs> They're like, you're going to die and maybe your kids will have this thing. It just takes forever, it seems like. And this moves much more quickly. And then it does lend itself to modular building, which gets somebody under a roof. Right. And then the courtyard idea, thats I've had that design in my head for lots of different applications. And I think it makes a tremendous amount of sense definitely in the desert because everybody thinks about wind or I'm sorry everybody thinks about sun and direct evaporation but what kills you is wind yeah because wind just takes that moisture away uh so I think that's a great plan now Abit Nuts is asking here about durability and earthquakes seems like a good time let's cover that I don't know about earthquakes but this is a very durable building technology it is. Um, like I said, the tensile strength isn't necessarily there. And then, you know, places like California really don't like aircrete because it sure. is, in fact, less seismically sound. And yet they still approve AAC commercial buildings. You know, where they go out there with a crane, they lift this giant panel in place and they just bolt it up. And suddenly the, the whole built, the whole store is up and running in, in two weeks somehow. Yeah. And so aircrete being homemade is much more susceptible to cracking. And I know that freaks a lot of people out, but um, honestly, like when you do the math and the engineering on this, you already know what it is you've done. And so the typical aircrete building has a compression strength of, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 160 ish pounds per square inch. 
Um, and then when you add up the weight of the roof, the snow load and everything, you've got three PSI on the bottom of the wall. So it's more than capable of withstanding the load. But if you have an earthquake situation, that's where aircrete uh, is, the, is the least strong. Um, but, you know, what what I mean, really, when an area is hit with an earthquake, what really stands up? So you have to add something like cellulose fibers uh, to the aircrete, uh, or you switch your building method to where you have uh, basically using aircrete as a loose fill insulation, which can be code approved much more easily, by the way. Um, and then your loose fill insulation is um, not load bearing. Um, but if you added cellulose, when it dries, the heat doesn't transport. Uh, transfer through. If you use, say, basalt fibers, now you've just killed your thermal insulation and you've kind of defeated mm -hmm. one of the main aspects of aircrete, but it makes it uh, more capable of withstanding. Uh, so when you design with seismic uh, considerations, you have to add a fiber, and that's usually cellulose, and quite frankly, that's usually that, that stuff that they use, you know, when you see them, they come out with the truck and they spray that green uh, stuff all over the side of the road where it grows grass later. Mm -hmm. uh, it's that cellulose that comes in big bundles that you would mix in because it's got a, a fairly long fiber. So, you know, it is alternative building. It's not really code approved, and we don't have any buildings we can show you that have stood up to like, say, uh, you know, a, a six or seven level uh, event, you know, the data is yeah. not there. And that's the issue with anything alternative is we, nobody has footed the $150,000 bills and the five years through the legislature to get this a uh, code approved. Um, so you kind of take that responsibility into your own hands uh, when it comes to that. Uh, you, so, Again, you're kind of on your own there. And when you go out looking for an engineer to actually help you with this, I have engineers call me asking me for the data. It's like, dude, it's codified. You're the engineer. Go look it up. Um, <laughs> and, and you can find very few engineers who will actually engineer and run the math on things. Uh, and so if you're in a seismic area and you want to be protected, it's good to have the engineering done. And if you're going to have it code approved, you're going to most likely have to have an engineer. Anyway. Yeah. 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 What options are there? You have a, a figure in here of building a home from the earth for $4 a square foot. And just real quick, I ran a real quick calculation here just to, uh, to see, I, I bought my first home for 85,000 bucks back in 1995. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was around 1800 square foot. Just to make a point of how low that is, that was $47 a square foot when I bought that house. And people were like, man, you got a deal. So <laughs> we start talking about $4 a square foot. We're talking, I, I, I think most camping tents cost more than $4 a square foot. So yep. is okay. that a thing? Okay, so first of all, it's a little clickbaity. Um, it's okay. a little attention grabbing. It, it, it's a pattern interrupt, right? Yeah. So um, that's the cost of the walls. Uh, okay, right. so when you talk about actually adding the roof and, and with almost any kind of construction, unfortunately, at the end of the day, either either conventional lumber or truss work is still going to be it's still going to be a conventional roof. And then the question is, how are you going to finish the house? Are you going to you know, go get some pine boards and build your own cabinets or are you going to have a professional come in and build hickory or walnut cabinetry for you? So highly variable depending on the choices you make. So when you're talking about a finished structure, uh, let's see, I have some notes here. 
Uh, you know, a finished structure uh, built from earth can be as low as $15 per square foot. If you've done everything, you've built your own cabinets, that includes the air conditioning that you put in. If you have to hire a company that's going to charge you $12,000 to put in a normal uh, split air conditioning system, that's going to go up by as much as $12,000, depending on where you're located. If you're going to hire an electrician, that's going to go up. Uh, substantially. So if you do everything yourself, you can you can build it from the earth. And now there's another caveat. Where do you live? What is your soil type? Yeah. Is it all silt? Now I'm going to have to buy in clay because to build good earth structures. Just build- for everybody in the audience, we've just turned a corner. We're not talking about aircrete at this point. No. Yeah, we just switched to building from the dirt under your feet. So if you happen to fall within the range of usable dirt with the ratio of clay and sand uh, and silt is workable, you can build it straight from the earth uh, and you can finish that for $15 a square foot. But typically uh, with modern expectations, we don't want a house where we have to go fix cracks in the natural earthen wall every single year or every single season. So we're typically going to stabilize that with cement and that's going to add some expense. And when you're talking about cast earth, which is what I'm talking about specifically here, because it's easier than rammed earth. It's as easy as earth building gets. You just literally throw your dirt in the barrel. You mix it with as little as 16 to one, 16 parts sand, one part cement. And depending on your site, that typically comes down to more like, 10 or 8 to 1, um, or if you want to go super, if you want to go all the way back to cement, that winds up being 3 to 1. Um, and so typically, if you're going to build a functional house, you need a, a an earthen wall. You need a space that's filled with insulation. That can be straw or that can be fiberglass or cellulose or whatever, but it can't just be an open space because heat will transfer easily through an open space by heating up an air molecule, and then it moves to the other side and transfers its heat. So you need lots of little air pockets. And so that can be air, uh, but that's not aircrete. If you put aircrete in there, that drives the expense up. We're talking about earthen wall, gap, straw, another earthen wall. What that gives you thermal mass, it gives you insulation, it gives you an efficient structure that'll actually be functional. Um, because if you look at most, say, uh, cob houses or even earth ships, you know, like and you put them here in Texas, not in Taos, New Mexico, you know, like, man, this is great. And then about a month and a half into summer, it's like, you know, it's starting to suck in here. I think I'm going to go sleep outside um, because they have no insulation and they, over time, they ramp up their heat. And then winter comes and over and then it starts getting too cold and you have to continuously pump a lot of energy into it. So $15 a square foot is like a, a four inch earthen cement reinforced wall with a foot or more of space and another uh, four inch wall. And so, yeah, $15 a square foot is not impossible. But again, what are you putting into that? How much are you going to spend on industrial materials to finish the house the way you want it? Yeah, it's, but it's, it just shows like there's another option. And I think that's something people need to understand. I think the other side of that is what's best for one person is probably not necessarily what's best for another person. Like you said, what's, what's the material like where you are? What's the climate like where you are? What are, what are the codes like where you are? Mm-hmm. But I would say that building with earth is the number one way homes are still constructed in the world today. Yes, we live in a totally we live in a bubble in the Western world. We really do. We live in a, a different world. Not everybody can just run down to Lowe's or Home Depot and uh, get get a couple pallets full of yellow pine and start framing walls. That's that's it's not like that everywhere. No. We've kind of lost. And, and, and honestly, it's 
environmentally, it's a horrible way to do business. What we do in this country at this point, instead of growing long-term timber and building houses that live that last 500 years, we grow short-term timber, we monocrop it, and we build houses that are ready to fall apart in 50. I mean, we really do. That's what we do today. By 20, the modern houses by year 20, you know, you're going to need to spend some money to keep it up. <laughs> I had a guy on uh, the dude, I can't think of his name now from strong towns. And he was explaining how one of the big problems we're having with uh, America today, suburban and urban America is that because subdivisions are pretty much rolled out over about a year to two. And because of the way we build things, we're about 20 years in shit starts falling apart. The whole place starts to fall apart at exactly the same time. And then when urban planners get involved and say, you can't sublet, you can't put a tiny house in the backyard, the things that people would normally do, which is get somebody else to live there, what have you, and then make a little extra money and use that to upkeep the house. They just kind of do what they absolutely got to do. And the quality and the lifestyle just continues to go down. So then they dump the house, make it somebody else's problem and move to a new one. Yeah. And then so we just have this thing where like this was a really nice neighborhood and it starts to go downhill across time. And it, it's yeah. and yet there's straw, there's straw mud houses like straw bale type construction with mud that's still in use 150 years later. <laughs> yeah. Not even even lumber built if it's built out of proper material. So the house that I grew up in my high school years in, my dad still lives in it. And it was built around 1897, I want to say. But the first house ended up being what we call the shanty, which was like a big shed with an attic and a basement. That was the original house. That was built in the 1840s. Right. And when I would, I remember we used to hang deer down in the basement down in there to, to butcher them. And we had a particular good year and we had enough room to hang three deer. And so my grandfather said, go down there and put two more nails up in the beam so we can hang that fourth deer up. So I went down there and proceeded to try to drive a nail into 100-year-old oak planks, 150-year-old oak planks at the time. It did not work. Uh, you couldn't put a nail in them. And I ended up getting a drill and pre-drilling them, and the drill smoked yeah. to drill into these planks that were a good three and a half inches thick, not deep, thick. Yeah, and that's what we used to build houses out of. But we're off topic there. But it's it's a reason to start looking at other other ways yeah. to do things for sure. Yeah, I mean it's not like you have to do air creed or mud or whatever. My biggest takeaway is that um, I want to just convey the idea that you don't have to settle for not having a home. You don't have to settle for rent and mortgages necessarily. Um, if, if you're a do it yourself kind of person, or you just want that bug out location, the yep. point is that if your soil's right, you could build an arch shaped house for free, mm -hmm. burn some bones and mix up some plaster, uh, and coat that thing and live for free. Uh, if you're willing to adjust your expectations. Uh, so don't take no for an answer, I guess is what I'm saying. And yes, it's like the permaculture saying it, it depends on you and, and climate and everything else. <laughs> so. What are your thoughts about people that live more in urban spaces and what they can do to adapt? Because in the end, you said right from the beginning, you got to work with what you got. Right. And so, you know, you can see a lot of examples. I, I can't remember the name of the people, but there's that uh, little family uh, that's near a stadium, I think in Chicago. They got six tenths of an acre and on that's a house. And yet they not only grow all their own food and they, they snuck in goats and chickens even against the code. And they're able to sell enough gourmet greens to pay for their lifestyle and feed themselves. 
so it kind of depends on how much you're willing to, you know, bend the rules or address these people uh, in court. Um, as you find out that you can't use a lawyer for yourself and that there's already Supreme Court rulings like, yeah, you can issue a permit, you can find a permit, you can uh, cancel a permit, but you can't actually interfere with the activities of conducting life, such as sheltering yourself. And there's a lot of nuance in there. So you can either deal with it over a year or two of legal headaches and win and do it. But what most people are going to do is, is they're going to have the chickens until the neighbor tells on them. Mm-hmm. Um, they're in the most extreme urban example, you know, you can get almost free land in Chicago in bad neighborhoods and you can go in, you can buy up a block, you can knock down the houses, build a new duplex, put a fence around the whole block and you can farm right there in the middle. Um, a lot of it, at the very least, if you're going to obey and you're going to follow every suggestion, you do what you can do. And maybe that means a little aeroponic thing to grow lettuce on your kitchen counter that uses electricity for light. Maybe that means you put a wicking bed out on your balcony and you have to put grow lights up so, during the day so that it can actually get enough light. Um, maybe that means you go out and gorilla garden. Um, maybe that means you find a space or a co- like sometimes you can find, you know, little cooperatives in the area where you can like pay some little fee and you get a little plot of ground to grow on. Uh, maybe that means you go out and use the space between the land and the sidewalk or the or the median between the road. Uh, these common spaces. Um, there's a lot you can do. So I think it's important to do what you can do. And because as you learn your skills and you get better with working with what you do have access to, you'll find more and more ways to expand that. Um, and maybe that's using everybody's balcony to grow one planter of food and you just split what you get off of there. It's just it's really limited by the imagination. And you should never let yourself be told you can't do something, because if you can do, you know, 16 square feet somewhere and perfect your skills on that. Worst case scenario, you're going to be able to take that across the road into a pasture during a hard time and just make it happen anyway. Yeah. Yeah, and there's always a way, too. Like, you know, you're, as you're saying, I'm thinking of one of my friends. You look at the front, and he lives in a very nice neighborhood. I don't think chickens are supposed to be there. And it looks like they have this beautiful, and it is, this is a beautiful rocked-in raised bed. And there's, like, plants to the front of it that make it look like the whole thing's a raised bed. What it actually is is a chicken habitat. Right. And there's a little chicken house in there, and they use a deep litter system. And they only keep, like, three birds, but... That's plenty of eggs for a family. This is a three-person family, one kid, two adults. And uh, no one knows those chickens are there except a couple neighborhoods that are trustworthy, and, and they make more eggs than they can use. So the kids the kids from those family come and get eggs. Yeah, and no one bothers them. And, like, you know, I knew, had a guy on the show years ago that kept a, a stack of quail in his one-car garage in, in Detroit. And he produced... 10,000 plus eggs and over a thousand cold birds a year. Yeah. There's always something you can do it. And it's about being creative and, and keeping the Karens out of your life. You know, I, right. I remember back in the eighties when it was illegal to have satellite TV before they came up with a legit way to do it. And they had these big dishes and the one dude made his dish look like it was an antenna that or not an antenna, a, a big umbrella that had been bent over and then nobody bothered him. Like it's all about how creative you can be. 
Exactly. How many ways can you, and, and how much, what is your willingness to overcome these things, you know? And maybe before you, I mean, there's, there's a two approaches. One, just do it until the neighbor complains and then adjust. I mean, it's kind of yeah. like the thing with the homestead. You're always, okay, there's a new problem. Let's deal with it today. Um, you could potentially get to know your neighbors and kind of, you know, hint, maybe not necessarily directly say you're going to put chickens in the backyard, but yeah. would it bother you if there were some extra sounds coming over the fence? Um, yeah. You know, can you can you mitigate those things? Can you do sprouts and quail inside of your garage? You know, yeah, uh, it just yeah. depends on your situation, your willingness. You know, a way to challenge. talk to a neighbor about the chicken thing would be, man, I have this friend and he got a couple chickens that wasn't bothering nothing. And his neighbor pitched about it and see what they say to that. Right. Yeah. Uh, they're like, oh, that's stupid. I don't have to worry about Bill. Right. Exactly. And, it, and, if, and it, if, if Tom on the other side's like, well, I can see why. So, well, I need to put the chickens over on the fence line with Bill. Like, you be a little bit shrewd, you know. Um, yeah. You also have a thing here uh, talking about community and having your community separate but together. Yeah. What, so, what do you mean by that? Okay, so, you know, I get to interact with a lot of people, and it, it amazes me how many people in this space, they all want to do this community thing, and yet none of them can agree to pick an area because it's not perfect. Yeah. Um, and um, it, it almost has to be kind of like the way it was in the founding of this country. It's like together but separate. Like, you need your space where it's yours, it's under your control, you have autonomy, but maybe you have to do this in a decentralized manner because it's very hard to get – a lot of truly like-minded people together on the same piece of land to then buy the land and then split it up accordingly. So, uh, and, and like, you know, you had talked about when you initially did, uh, you know, your permaculture thing about creating a community only to find out that subdivision, man, you had to put in a, a paved road and electricity and all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, so you either have to sue them and win and buck the system or what's really more practical is where everybody's at you have a decentralized community, almost like a virtual community. So everybody's a part, but what if in a particular city or county or state, you have one guy willing to do hotshot service who's already doing it, who could pick up a, a, instead of just driving with an empty load, can take, you know, farm supplies from one little farm outside the city and then deliver them to a drop spot where everybody could come pick up their CSA box. Uh, what, what, what can you mail to other people? Uh, can you travel and help one another? You know, uh, I think of a, uh, a story an old man told me during the depression, you know, uh, an old lady, an old widow, she couldn't really do much, but she'd sit around and make quilts. Uh, and, um, their, their family had the right soil and they grew tons of apricots. Another guy had a ton of corn. And so they would get together at the end of harvest seasons and do their little yamborees. And they would literally bring all of their surplus onto the square and just set it out. And everybody could swap and exchange freely for whatever they needed. And everybody had enough. Well, there's no reason we basically can't do the same thing using UPS or using the mail. I mean, there is yeah. some expense there, but it allows us to build these systems of support for ourselves and share the surplus with other people. Um, and that allows us to build community, but you have to actually interact with one another. You have to actually want to be in community because, you know, a lot, I see so many communities to get together, but they don't actually interact. They're basically strangers in a, in a, in a suburb or strangers in an area that are always bickering. Um, and so it's better when you don't have one person or an organization like an HOA sort of in control. It's better yeah. to, to live separately and have your thing 
And it's and it's it's less effort to do that, you know, using the infrastructure of roads and shipping service that we have now and find ways that we can put our own thiefdoms in and build relationships within our community and ship all of this stuff and all of this product and all of this surplus to make it available. You know, it's kind of like setting up the Agora. Right. But we don't currently have a proper Agora and everybody wants to reinvent the wheel. Instead of doing YouTube, we're going to create bright town or we're going to uh, go over and create another version of it instead of moving to the uh, international or the interplanetary file system where you take responsibility to host your video on your own server or on your computer. And then it gets shared. And then as it's getting shared, everyone shares the load. You know, we have to start thinking about how we can, reduce our dependence on the system that can be censored and edited and controlled. And so we have to build community, even if that community is just your Facebook group and you're all just making known what you have an excess of or what you're willing to help. Maybe uh, like we had some people who networked and they found out they all lived in Cochise County, Arizona. So they were able to then say, Hey, I'm driving over to your, the bill's place. You want to come? We're going to have a barbecue and, and basically have the barn raising. See, I think we need more of that, like Nicole Sauce calls them, get shit done weekends and stuff like that. And I think it's a great way to go. And I think one of the things, you know, you mentioned kind of back when this country was founded. Um, one of the things about that time is as people would move to a new area, start to settle it, set up a town and settle out around it. What they had was churches and it would just work out that pretty much would be kind of a homogenous faith of that initial settlement. So there would, there wouldn't be like 27 churches. There'd be a church, maybe two. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have a lot less church going people. Now I'm among the non-church going people. So I'm not condemning anybody for not going, but there was a certain community aspect in that almost everybody was in one place for a few hours, one day a week from town. So everybody knew everybody. And so if you're going to do something more on a geographic local model, I think you are much better off. I have my property. I don't want to cut it up into little pieces. I don't want 37 people living in tiny houses on my three acres. I don't want that. I'd love to get the six acres from the older gentleman behind me. If he ever decides he wants to sell and do something with that, but everybody having their own place has worked for humanity forever. But what we need is some kind of common bond. And I think when people, so you, what is my strength? So your strength is there are people out where you live. They pretty much all leave each other alone because that's why they're there. Right. So getting those people to cooperate is easy because if I don't want to cooperate with you, I just don't come. One of the advantages that we have, though, is you get more and more toward the, the urban rural fringes. There are amenities. There are places where people can meet and creating local meetups and stuff like that. And maybe those meetups start out as we're going to we're going to all hang out and talk about homesteading at a bar and have a couple drinks the first time before we go to anybody's house, because maybe people aren't comfortable with that right away. And, mm-hmm. and whatever you can do to build that community. And then that way, everybody does their own thing, but everybody figures out where the overlap is. That's kind of the, the town that I grew up in. You know, it wasn't a really small town, but it was it was small. You're talking, I think Minersville had. 3,800 people in it at the time. And that was including like parts that weren't really Minersville. Um, So you didn't know everybody, but you knew enough people. And there was, even then there was more than one church, but there was kind of that whole church bonding thing. And even people that weren't part of like 
the church that my family went to, we had two big picnics a year and not a lot went on. So everybody came to the church picnic. And I think we need to try to bring some of that whole vibe back to these communities. And I think that the way that things are going with big cities, like there's just so much opportunity to kind of hell with developing a, uh, a retreat or something like that. We we can redevelop small towns all over the daggone country. Yeah, you really can. Um, you know, in the urban space, you know, you see all these examples of indoor, you know, hydroponic gardening. Yeah. Um, but there's also roof spaces where you can put little gardens. There's little plots of land that, that the community could use. And there does need to be some unifying thing, whether it's a maker space or, um, but yeah, there does need to be some commonality because what yeah. I see is everybody um, wants to do community, but nobody knows how to get along uh, yeah. and give a little. Uh, everybody's kind of self trying to be self-centered and build community at the same time. And it just doesn't seem to quite work out. And there's a lot of people, you know, that would go to church, but there's a lot of people that won't. So, you know, how do you, you have to be willing, first of all, to, to kind of inconvenience your schedule and adapt to that that way of, of like, hey, you know, there's a community thing. Let's let's go meet our neighbors because we're going to go out of our way to build a network of relationships. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, last thing, you know, here's what you got. This is on your notes. Liberty dollar, crypto, cash, gold, silver is one of these solutions to conducting private business out of the system. Do you, do you think that we really need to use one of those or all of those or, or what? Well, I'm not going to presume to tell anybody what we should do, but I look at it this way. Uh, for every dependence that you have on the system, you're going to have to transact back in the dollars. And if you, you look at the corporate structures, all the corporations are owned by a few and all those few corporations are owned by even fewer families. Um, and if you're going to play their game, you're going to have to interact in their fiat. Um, and when you do, you're using the benefit of someone else's intellectual property and, and the fact that they've procured the resources and they have provided the supply chain. So you're going to have to pay taxes. You're going to have to mm-hmm. fully comply. It is their system, and that is their rules for participation. But the more you build community, the more you become independent, um, and the more systems of support that you and your community can build into your lives, um, then the less you can't, you, you have to interact with that system. And that's when trading gold would be great. Trading crypto would be great. Trading uh, something else. You know, uh, Liberty Dollar allows, like, say, you and I uh, to do a quick online transaction. And then later, when you choose, you can redeem physical silver. But we just did an online little check, check, click kind of uh, thing and you've gotten paid and you know, I don't have to haul around silver or risk mailing it through the mail. Crypto is great, but it is subject to market maker manipulation and big money coming in and big money going out. Uh, if you had your own community currency, like I kind of like Cloudcoin because it's like, it's like crypto cash in that you can't, you can exchange it offline. Your encryption happens just on, on and within your wallet and you have to decrypt it to send it and it only gets secured when it gets re-encrypted and then using uh, something like hard drive technology, it then will synchronize it to prevent fraud, but there's no blockchain that can be traced down like the way the Silk Road was busted uh, because they looked where something went in and where something came out. Um, but nobody uses the best solution. So, But any crypto, any local exchange 
currency that you can do between yourselves where you don't have to change back into the system is an advantage to you because it's already been through the Supreme Court. Like, look at what the Liberty Dollar story is. They have the, the case law listed. Uh, basically, inside a PMA, private member association, public means anything that's government. Private means anything that's between individuals. One's registered, one's not. One gets permission, one doesn't. But they've already ruled that within a PMA, I have no obligation. If you buy something from me or I pay you for a service, there's no obligation for me to report upon you. Now, I can't say that, it's, that that means you don't have to pay taxes, but it puts it all within our personal control. Um, because amongst a PMA, we can trade within ourselves. It's kind of like the town uh, where liquor is illegal, and yet I could go buy a private membership at Pizza Hut and get a pitcher of beer on my table, right? Uh, so you, you step out, and there's been a lot of businesses during COVID who have started PMAs. Uh, we even helped a, a, a chiropractor set his up to where you, know, you, put, you put the license on park or you hand all the licensure back, and when you come in, you have to buy a private membership. Uh, and then somehow, magically, all of that bother in your life is no longer part of your life. So whether you use crypto or cash or Liberty Dollar kind of depends on where you're at and what you're doing. And the more you can build community, the more you can meet the needs of the community within the community, the more it makes sense to use Liberty Dollar, silver or any kind of crypto because you don't have to exchange back into the dollar. Because at the end of the day, if we do business as usual and someone else provides all the systems of support and they use a fiat, then... It almost doesn't matter, honestly, uh, because you're going to wind up having to cash back out into a fiat to get the stuff you need. And, and, and with that comes all the obligations. So if you're not outside of that in a private community, maybe it doesn't matter so much. Maybe you're better off staying in cash, parking it in, uh, you know, investing, but also parking your cash in a, uh, a cash equivalent uh, life insurance policy that, that occurs no tax liability and can be cashed out in retirement and has no inheritance tax either. Maybe you're better off borrowing against that. Maybe you're better off staying in the system if in the system is where you are. So again, it depends. Yeah, I think it depends is the answer. That is a short answer because it also is not an all or nothing. No. Like there is a place for each of these forms of currency. I always try to do as much business outside the system of the beast as I can, but most people that I want to interact with, most people that I want to trade with, most people that I want to buy from are in that system and they're firmly entrenched. Exactly. So if you give me the option to deal with Bill over here versus Amazon, I'll deal with Bill. But if Bill don't have what I need, Bill don't have what I need. Exactly. Right? I mean, it, it isn't that I won't pay a little bit more. It's that I have to be able to get the thing. Exactly. I have to be able to get the thing yeah. that I want. And, this whole parallel economy idea, everybody throws that word around, but there's not a lot of there's not a lot of action within it or everybody that is in it's doing the same thing. Like we only need so many people to grow tomatoes. It, it, it's not a parallel economy. But what it makes me think of is when I lived in Hot Springs, Arkansas, we moved there. I was really excited. I found there's going to be a, a there's actually a legitimate farmer's market. Right. And I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, that's great. We'll go farmer's market. Every table have tomatoes and peppers and, and, and squash on. And nobody bought any of it because anybody that cared enough to go to a farmer's market had a garden and everybody grew those things. So nobody was, you know, really out like the dude that sold 
uh, uh, pastured chickens and rabbits and all, he would do well. And there was a guy that was really big into like exotic greens and stuff and he would do well. But a lot of those people never sold anything because it, it wasn't, it wasn't suburban enough. It wasn't upscale enough yeah. that caring Karen went there. So she could say, I sourced my tomatoes from a local grower that, that, person didn't live there right and, and so the people who would go to the farmer's market were just people that were like oh cool we'll go to the farmer's market well i don't need tomatoes i got you know i got a hundred plants in my backyard I, and yeah. so we need to think that way like we need to get more creative not everybody can do the same thing and, and well and create I, a valid trading economy i think that because people have to want to make a fundamental change to our systems of support because the issue that I see is I meet so many people like the avocado farmer um, or, or the, you know, one's willing to do a box program. Another one's just like their mind is locked. Even though they believe in freedom, they will not make the mental leap to put in the infrastructure and use the labor to do a box program and sell directly to the customer where he can make more money and we can save money and we can get a fresh product. Yeah. Uh, even in the backyard, if we want to build a parallel economy, we're going to have to be that change because that means while I'm, say, cutting up my mustard greens, drying them, blending them into powder so they can be added to soups later, I'm going to have to make that available. And what's truly lacking is a good centralized marketplace. I mean, there are solutions out there. there there's the decentralized web. There's IPFS already built into Brave. Uh, there's Open Bazaar, a, a, a marketplace that uses your computer to put, put it up there over the Tor network. So it's not public per se, but nobody uses it. Everybody wants to go create another version of the same old thing, and there's no uniting to it, and no one's willing to make the effort. If enough people make that effort to make – if they've got a wrench for sale, it should go on, on that free market first. Yeah. And people have to make that effort so that more trade and more of a parallel economy can be built in that space. And then you have the option to do more cryptocurrency trading, uh, more just outright barter than you do or you have to exchange back into a dollar. And until that happens, until everyone's willing to go out of their way to participate in this market, and it, again, it's like this centralized, decentralized thing. And the only way I can see that being uh, in a purist perspective is going to be on a decentralized uh, platform. Even though it already exists, nobody uses them. Everybody's still trying to reinvent the wheel. Yeah, yeah. And there's a, there's a comfort issue there. There's an ease of use issue there. And there's a... A vocabulary issue there. People hear a word like that. Oh, it's a big deal. Well, you use HTTP every day, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. And you don't think about it. And it's just about learning new skills. But we're at an hour and 50 minutes here, so we need to we need to kind of wrap up. So I want to give you a chance to tell everybody about your website, where they can learn more about you. And you said, you know, for some of the stuff that you offer online, you had a discount for members of this audience. Yeah, so um, we basically are trying to help people become more self-sufficient, and we are uh, we we're running a workshop. Typically, the main workshops are in April and October each year, um, and at least for the foreseeable future, we're trying to pack so much value into these workshops. It's honestly ridiculous, but we do a week of workshop where you learn everything from foundation and plumbing to building an aircrete structure to put to designing a solar system, designing that worm compost flush toilet system, uh, sizing and putting in your air conditioning. Basically, every skill and every bit of knowledge you need to actually make a functional house, not just a shell. Uh, and then the second week now, we're doing kind of like the off-grid homesteading portion where it, it doesn't cost any more to attend, 
but it takes that second week off where we're going to be building with cast earth. We're going to be showing you the processes that it actually takes to grow uh, seed and seedlings and, and your garden and how to swap that out uh, and actually get to see hands on eyes on what that space looks like to actually produce all the food for one person. Uh, we also have a day where we devote it to becoming familiar with what's necessary to start your own online business and kind of where to get the ideas from or what value can you offer the world that you can exchange for money. Uh, so basically trying to help people get started being able to, or at least be familiar with building every aspect of their life out. And um, we have online video courses uh, as well as that workshop. So we're offering a 10% discount for TSP listeners. And of course the coupon code is TSP. Um, and that is for the video courses, as well as if you wanted to come out here into the Chihuahuan desert uh, and check out what it's like actually living off grid and actually, you know, stay inside of an air creek room to see, you know, what's this air creek thing all about. Uh, then we actually rent rooms uh, and we, you can get 10 percent off that if you want to come out and just stay. We're near the Big Bend National Park. And in the fall, they have international uh, chili final cookoffs out here. So uh, there's also the Big Bend State Park. So it's kind of like big wilderness out here in the middle of nowhere. Um, and outside of our workshop program, those rooms are available. Very, very cool. Well, hey, I appreciate you being with us today. This was a great discussion. Uh, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Jack. Appreciate everything that you do. All right, folks. And with that, real quick, before I wrap up, I want to remind you guys one of the ways that you can help support this show and the work that we do here is by doing your online shopping starting at tspaz.com. tspaz.com has re uh, reviews of all the products that I use in my life on a daily basis. And that means I've, I've spent my money on it. If I need it again, I'd buy the same thing again or I won't recommend it. In fact, time, time after time, I find new things that are better and I update that and I take the old ones away or I put a disclaimer on them saying this is still good, but here's the better version of it. Today is a real simple product, though, and uh, this is a great brand. It's called Viva Doria, uh, Brazilian Pink Peppercorns, but as long as it's a quality brand, I, I don't really have a huge amount of brand loyalty here. This is just a really great one, but I wanted to tell you, if you like cooking like I do, this is one of those things that Jack calls a, a cheat code in cooking. Um, Brazilian pink peppercorns aren't, you know, a lot of people think, you know, they're all the pepper plant, all the different colors come from the same plant. That's true until you get to pink. The white, the green, uh, the black uh, peppercorns, all of those come from the same plant. They're just different levels of ripeness. Brazilian peppercorns come from a tree uh, and they're really cool and they have, it's hard to explain. When you crack them, they have a smell that's almost exactly the same as like black pepper, except it's a little more intense. The heat's a little less, but it's a little more like a chili pepper, and it's got a fruity flavor to it, and they look cool. And I have this write-up for you. It's in the notes where you can find everything today in the audio notes. There's a link in the video notes you can get uh, about an hour after the live stream ends. You can go over here and check this stuff out. Uh, but I, I give you a ton of information about them. I even give you a, a recipe and procedure for making a uh, pink peppercorn crusted steak uh, at the bottom. And it's something you're going to have to try to see if you like it. Uh, it comes in different sizes. But if you like a little bit of heat and a little bit of sweet, I can't see you not liking them. And uh, one more thing to know about them, you don't need a grinder for them. They're pretty soft. You can actually use them whole. I tend to throw them in a mortar and pestle 
and just crush them up a bit. You could bash them with a rolling pin or something like that, but a coarse crush is the way to go with them. And they're soft enough. You literally can mash one in your fingers. So you don't need a pepper mill for it. But if you wanted to make like a pepper blend and you tossed them in a mill with, let's say, black and, and green peppercorns, it would work. Uh, and some blends actually come that way. But if you see pink, that's what this is. It's just a really cool thing. I like to give you stuff beyond the prepper world, beyond all that stuff, just stuff that makes your life a little bit better. Learning to be a great cook saves you a ton of money, and it's it's great to have little cheat codes, little things that you can do that just kind of up the level of what you're doing. And, uh, you know, at, at like I think it's 14 bucks for a half a pound of them. It's it, A little goes a long way, so check that out. Remember, you can also always support this show by becoming a member of the Member Support Brigade. And I would go so far as to say, if you don't do that, you hate money. You will probably save well more than what it costs you to be a member of the MSB. If you want to learn more about that, the survivalpodcast.com forward slash members or click on members at the top. Thank you for being with us today, ladies and gentlemen, friends and neighbors. Uh, tomorrow will be a Thursday, so we'll have a Just Jack show. And I am just getting back into my first week after being shut down. So I got to tell you the truth. I don't know what we're going to talk about tomorrow, but I knew, know it will be awesome. Expert Council show on Friday. That'll wrap up our first week back with you for 2023. With that's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution